It's a real pleasure to be here with Tom Russo, the managing member of Gardner Russo Gardner. Tom has very graciously agreed to speak at Latticework 2017, taking place on September 7th at the Yale Club of New York, exploring the subject of intelligent investing in a changing world. Tom, thank you for speaking at the conference and also thanks for being here right now. It's my pleasure. It's truly an honor to be here with you having an informal lunch together. Mr. Russo, you have been incredibly generous as a teacher. The MOI Global community is most grateful for the depth of knowledge and experience you've shared with us. By way of background, Mr. Russo joined Gardner Russo Gardner as a partner in 1989 and became the managing member of the firm in 2014, where he oversees over $10 billion of global value equity investments invested through Sumpervic partnerships, as well as separately managed accounts. Tom's investment approach is focused on a small number of industries in which companies have historically proven to be able to generate sustainable amounts of net free cash flow. These industries typically have included food, beverage, tobacco, and advertising supported media. This focused approach reflects Mr. Russo's training and discipline at the Sequoia Fund in New York, where he worked from 1984 to 1988, following graduation from Stanford University's MBA-JD program in 1984. To broaden this otherwise narrow universe, Mr. Russo has over decades relied upon investments in companies in similar industries based outside of the United States. Indeed, Mr. Russo has had the foresight to recognize the benefits of international investing before many other investors did so. In the process, his clients, in some instances, have reaped superior investment rewards from these early moves. Mr. Russo, I'd love to please learn a bit more about Gardner Russo, Gardner's history, and your own personal journey. The, the firm has an origin that overlaps my own training and background in that the man with whom I joined into partnership in 1989, Eugene Gardner, had trained in New York with Bill Rowain, the man with whom I trained decades later. Gene had worked with Bill at the firm Kidder Peabody, then at some point they went separate ways when Bill Ruane formed the Sequoia Fund and Gene Gardner moved back to Lancaster, Pennsylvania to manage family money and to take on a handful of investment advisory accounts in the community. Over the years, Gene's business paralleled much of the work done at Sequoia Fund and Gene had an ongoing involvement with Sequoia Fund, which is the way in which we met during the 1980s. When I was working at Sequoia Fund, I would often share ideas with Gene, who visited the firm from time to time, and we found that we had a sympathetic thought process and interest. When I decided that I was going to take the investment partnership that I had formed in Stanford Business School my last year and open it to outside capital beyond the capital of the three families for whom I initially invested, I naturally looked for a place where I could do so with the most efficiencies and at the same time, my partner, Gene Gardner, was looking for a partner who could deliver, along with the work on their own, investments that could be shared across the firm. And I felt that that was a task I certainly was prepared to engage since I had the youthful confidence back then of thinking that I had plenty of good ideas. And off we went. And at the time, I think there's less than $100 million combined at the firm. I may have arrived at 10. I can't recall. Something like that. And then over the years, I went about exactly what I had been trained to do, which is value investing with an eye towards international holdings. And even though I was based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, I got to know the uh, global airports quite well over the first 20 years as my wife gave me enormous cover by being a um, full-time mother and a caretaker for both our children 
which freed me up to pursue the world for investment ideas. By the way, my wife contributed to that process as well, insofar as one of my earliest expressions about what I look for as an investor is I like to go straight to someone's house when I visit, open up their kitchen cupboards, and try to understand why what's in there is in there. And if I would have done that for my wife's kitchen cupboard, you would have found Weetabix, a British cereal that most of the world can't stomach. You would have found Bovril, you would have found Bangers, you would have found Mash, you would have found Vegemite, all of which are items that populated her background growing up in England. Weetabix, it turns out, uh, the next question I'd ask once I'm visiting someone's kitchen cabinets is, by the way, are these companies public? And of course, that's easy to determine by just reading the label. And it turned out that Weetabix was an independent company. I called them up, sure enough, they had shares. Of course, nobody had ever bought the shares because it was illiquid. But I said about in the early 1980s, buying those shares, I ended up owning 21% of the company. On behalf of my investors, I think I bought every share that had traded, and it wasn't until I finally got my hands on one voting share that within months the firm sold to a private equity firm. I never quite understood whether the existence of one voting share in my hands, which allowed me to visit at the annual meeting, caused them to flee. But the true point was that they lacked the capacity to reinvest at the end of the day. Nobody in the world wants to eat Weetabix beyond the British shores. So unlike the other businesses I invested in the early 1980s, uh, Guinness, Johnny Walker, British American Tobacco, any number of the businesses based in England that we focus on at the same time, they all had the ability to grow. And grow they did because they had the free cash flow from the mature markets where they couldn't reinvest that they applied to reinvesting in emerging markets. Weetabix had no emerging markets, and so at some point with 120 million pounds in cash, they took a 600 million pound takeover offer, and my investors came away with 120 million pounds of cash. Uh, it was a terrific investment for which I owe great thanks to my wife for her peculiar tastes, and it was really set me resolutely on the path towards being a global investor. I'd love to read a quote in your own words. I consider myself to be a farmer, not a hunter. And I think most people on Wall Street are hunters. They like to fell big beasts, and I'm very comfortable planting a few rows and just tending to them carefully. Could you elaborate on this statement? There's an extraordinary mandate on Wall Street to do something and to do a lot of things. In fact, brokers are set up to encourage you to do everything all the time because their compensation only is triggered by turnover. And so I really very early understood the joy of doing my own work and planting our own seeds and then staying with them. On Wall Street, doing nothing is terribly underrated. Up until 2010, I don't think I bought any new positions for five years. 2010, there was a takeover of several of my companies. At that time, I bought MasterCard and Anheuser-Busch shares. And then I don't think I bought another position of size for another seven years. I was perfectly comfortable having the existing positions in the portfolio continue to redeploy their free cash flow to grow their core business globally. And I was delighted to have had the opportunity to buy two new businesses, Anheuser-Busch, InBev, and MasterCard, because of the market's myopia in 2010, fearing that the U.S. prospects that were at that point weak for both companies somehow suggested that the global prospects for those companies were also weak, which is absolutely quantifiably not the case. MasterCard's case, they did 80 plus percent of their business abroad, 
and the fact that the U.S. debit market was going to be disturbed because of the Dodd-Frank Amendment meant nothing to the prospects of MasterCard. It meant a lot to those people who thought they had felled a great big beast when they landed MasterCard and they suddenly thought because of the near-term pressures placed by Dodd-Frank they had to get rid of it. You know, we were perfectly delighted to hold and add to the position, confirmed as we were, that nothing had changed whatsoever in their longest-term outlook. And the analysis entirely the same in Hazard-Bush InBev shares at the time, which were troubled because the U.S. market volumes for AB InBev were declining. They were declining, in fact, however, on purpose because of the desire on the part of the Brazilians who took over the company years before to get rid of profitless volume. And by getting rid of those volumes, they were able to favor the business of their full-margin product. But our feeling is if we can buy just a handful of investments every couple of years, and those are run by shareholder-minded managers who redeploy capital to grow the intrinsic value on a per-share basis and do nothing but that, that our investors will be very well fed from the fields that we tend. Latticework 2017 explores the theme of intelligent investing in a changing world. I'd love to please dwell for a moment on the changing world element. What do you believe clearly is changing in the world? And what do you think with decent confidence will not change? I think with absolute certainty, a career in hairdressing and a career in a barbershop will not change. People's hair will continue to grow. They'll continue to go someplace to have it clipped. And if you were content with that as a profession, I think you'd be well served to lead a fairly relaxed life. Hair will grow. Anything much beyond that certainty starts to get a little more complicated. The vision thing gets a little cl more clouded. Do I think people will continue to mark important life transition moments with precious things that declare who people are by what they have? You bet. I think that started out with man in the cave when they first carved tips of their walking sticks or spears with expressions of art to show off one piece versus another to celebrate something. That's in the beast and I think it'll continue. Whether it means the entire congregation of 40-year-old women will want to have Cartier's love collection as the only gift that they can possibly live with when they turn 40 or not is clearly subject to debate at the moment. We think that the brand and the identity of something as powerful as Cartier will continue to enjoy a consumer sensibility that there is no adequate substitute, which gives the manufacturer of such products steady demand and pricing power. But it's not a given. To give an example, I met recently with a young man whose 40-year-old wife was in the, in the market for a celebration. And uh, instead of a love collection bracelet, as I suggested he could get her, constantly shopping my own company's um, wares as I do. He said his wife had no interest in that, but rather she and her friends in Greenwich, Connecticut would prefer to go on the internet and order something from some remote person in Scotland who'd hired a village contractor to pound out rough-hewn iron and with Celtic crosses on it or something. And, and exactly that's what they prefer notwithstanding the fact that four generations before them had been perfectly content with nothing but the Cartier Love Collection. That's the power, that's the disruptive power of the internet to give people ideas that can only be satisfied in new ways through new products. 
and then breaking that long-standing lock, which we've so relied upon as we planted our fields over decades. You shared with us a fascinating insight at Wide Boat Investing Summit 2017. This is a direct quote. The bulk of what we do is subject to a massive amount of pressure around the centrifugal force of younger consumers being far less brand loyal and new routes to market, such as those presented by Amazon, Alibaba, and open markets. Could you please elaborate how you think about the challenges and the opportunities posed by digital commerce and new behavioral patterns of younger consumers? There's been a couple of recent examples. I mean, there's so many different ways, but for one, I'll, um, Amazon, for instance, is trying to insert itself more deeply into consumers' decision-making using the things that they have in depth. One of them was consumer data about shopping habits, and the other is a power as it relates to pressuring manufacturers of products for better deals, better terms. Amazon possesses both of those, and they have the natural language search device that learns about you as you use it. Turning your attention towards the box on your desk and you say, order me some batteries, yeah, and to which he responds, yes, I will get you some, but I'm gonna get you some Amazon batteries that are private label because they just won an award for the best batteries in town in Minnesota, whatever it is. And by the way, they're cheaper than Duracell. And by the way, they're better than Duracell by a blind consumer's test. Now, suddenly, because you're locked into that trusted intermediary, you actually start to take those pitches. Now, there's an antitrust issue that's obviously embedded in that steering, but it's something that I think all manufacturers of branded products have to worry about, which is the power of retail to force a substitution simply by suggestion or by managing availabilities. But at the same time, if a company like Duracell, now owned by Berkshire, wants to stay listed they have to rely entirely on innovation and on communication through advertising, on promotion and all sorts of other devices to try to get around the grip that will be increasingly tightened upon them by Amazon. That's one example. You know, there are all sorts of examples in consumer products companies. Coffee is an example where the consumer has rotated from Starbucks to Pete's to Joe's to Phil's and to a Blue Bottle, to Stumptown, and each one of those enjoys a momentary relationship in the sun with younger consumers, and then the clouds settle in and they completely pack up their tent, move to another sunny sky, and they pick up a different brand. I actually think Facebook, the drive to project a sense of wonder about yourself is partly at the heart of the drive towards this need to constantly badge with a different item. In prior years, if you were a Budweiser drinker by the age you were 20, you probably drink in Bud at the age of 50. It's most likely by the time you're 50, you'll be switched to Bud Light. But you're not gonna go off and get raspberry flavored, you know, cider with a, you know, jasmine floral concoction. Just because it's new, you would not have pursued it. Today you would, and that's something that our companies have to confront directly. They do so with innovation, with communication that's relevant and it's delivered digitally, to promotion, to packaging. The game is not lost. The forces, as I call them, centrifugal are certainly centrifugal. And as the wheel spins more quickly, the more they pull. And that's the challenges that the companies that we invest in have to be. 
I'd rather meet those challenges starting out with global brands than with the commodity. You know, I think we have found in our portfolio fairly protected niches by virtue of the historic pull of loyalties of our brands. They just have to make sure that they enforce those loyalties and reward them through innovation. I'd love to explore if there are industries in which you have previously felt comfortable investing, which are now evolving into a too hard pile. Well, I've just found recently, through a series of announcements involving Amazon, just how quickly seemingly strong business franchises can be disrupted. You think about Walmart, Berkshire long held $5 billion with Walmart shares, never really made a lot of money on them, mind you. But once lamented, not having put $10 billion in years ago because he'd said that he would have been rich if he had only done that. Well, Walmart absolutely developed the, the world's finest systems logistically for delivering great choice at very low prices to people in very remote places using an extraordinary system of logistics. All of which, at the end of the day, as they were expressed in a million square foot super center, became consumer unfriendly. Because if you think about going in and shopping at a 400,000 square foot store and you want to buy milk, you want to buy socks, you want to buy uh, lawn detergent or something, lawn fertilizer, let's say, you're going to have to walk four miles in each direction and the registers are about 10 miles long. And it'll be a decidedly uninteresting experience. You may do it because of the uh, cost savings, but you don't do it because of the joy. And income new models, whether it's Aldi and Little, who have very small formats, or now it's Amazon site-based grocery pickup kiosk, or it's a full-stop Amazon bookstore, or a full-stop Amazon outlet for food, you're going to see formats that are less dictatorial to the consumer. So the, the huge format of Walmart allowed Walmart to channel people's shopping habits. However, it wasn't very customer-friendly. And I think the internet allows for explorations into the way business is done that can end up delivering more consumer satisfaction. And that becomes extremely difficult for companies in traditional lines of business to compete against. Their route to market dominance no longer carries an advantage. I can give you an example of that was Nestle when they bought a business in China called Yinlu. Bought it because it was a brand that was extremely loyal to the decades of Chinese consumers who remembered how vital peanuts had been in the 1960s when the uh, famine struck China. And so a drink Yinlu created called Peanut Milk shared in the glory of that memory and was one of the top rated drinks in China that possessed a brand, a heritage, and a route to market advantage because they served the very smallest markets in the very remotest towns. And Nestle paid up for that business to get the access that came with that route to market coverage. Well, fast forward to about four years after they made that investment, it turns out that the smartphone had completely disrupted what they thought they bought. First of all, the smartphone allowed every young Chinese consumer to watch Beverly Hills 1.0021, whatever the number is. And as they watch it, they see that people are drinking all sorts of strange things, but nobody's drinking peanut milk by Yinlu. So they start to think, well, maybe life could be different. Let's just think about it. We well, don't ever want your consumers to engage in that let's just think about it routine. As Charlie Bunger says at the annual meeting, you know, you never want to give your customer the, an interest in looking elsewhere for satisfaction. And though Nestle didn't provide that, the consumer through smartphones were able to transport themselves 
and see that other worlds existed and other people drank other things than peanut milk. And so out went the brand association with the past, out went their interest. However, the company thought that they still possessed the uh, secondary line of defense, which was the route to market. At that point, they realized that even that was frayed because on the same smartphone that created the idea in the consumer's mind of a Western-style drink called Coca-Cola, let's say, that same smartphone had a button which you could press and it's called Alibaba. And by pressing that button, you know, they will bypass the traditional route to market and go straight to your home and deliver you a cold Coca-Cola. Well, defense number two has just gone away and so the disruption to that channel was complete. Nestle's investment was completely attacked and challenged by the presence of the smartphone and the disruptive nature that that smartphone had on customer preferences and the ability to get a return from the investment in the route to market, the exclusivity that they once owned. I'd love to explore the same question from the other direction. Have you found any industries that previously had limited sustainable competitive advantage become more compelling in recent years? It's a very good question. And, um, you know, I would say the businesses that are able to take away layers of intermediaries. I think, for example, of female perfume cosmetics. You know, for decades, decades, the model depended upon the department store, first floor saleswoman. And the random nature of whether a certain person happened to walk across the floor at a certain time when a certain salesman was promoting a certain line of products by L'Oreal had a very random nature to it. There's very little information, the extent to which you're going to learn anything. You're dependent upon a sales rep who may have been drunk the night before and had a fight with her boyfriend when she came into work. And you know, to think that you as a manufacturer, owner of these powerful franchises that are you know, the most powerful franchises in the world in some cases are fragrances, as Coco Chanel called this product category, Hope in a Bottle. Well, to think of a business that owned the dominant brands in Hope in the Bottle, leaving them at the risk of some casual and uncommitted salesperson from some random department store, suggested just how ill-suited the association and the information education was. You think now of concentrations in Sephora or Ulta and eventually the web-based services, inserting a much more thoughtful and a much more deliberate and appropriate data-based marketing pitch and getting rid of the randomness of a layer that the department stores provided and in fact causing the department stores you know, just one added element of the world of hurt that they face generally. So I think that's sort of an example. I would think that there are other layers like that where there were layers of service providers who don't add value and whose roles in life will be disintermediated fully by virtue of the challenges from a more effective uh, use of information. Just as in the cosmetics field, I think you'll see a, a, an enhanced marketing pitch based on the power of information. I'd love to unpack another quote you shared with us at Wide Moat Investing Summit 2017. The tendency for moats to yeah. fill and narrow is accelerated because of the ease at which challenger brands come about. Yeah. 
how might a long-term oriented investor begin to navigate this threat? The prior question of businesses where you're seeing a benefit, I was reminded of one called Bonobos, which is a full line, kind of narrow, concentrated in its offering, but a full range of contemporary clothes. And they have one or two stores in New York City where you get to go and feel the fabric and look at the colors and kind of place them on or around you to, to sample how you feel in them. But they have no inventory. They have display and anything that you want to get arrives at your doorstep the next morning. It's now owned by Walmart because they thought that this would be a way to kind of gain knowledge, industry depth and in the world of e-commerce. But it's e-commerce with an omni-channel spin. And you know, the challenger brands, as I said, I mean, there's absolutely no way that those Scottish-based ironmongers would have found my friend's wife in Greenwich on her 40th birthday with a chance to put on a piece of heavy iron on her wrist rather than a lovely gold love bracelet by Cartier. They would have never met. There's absolutely no way that they'd have met each other. And so, you know, it is the ability to go beyond the local market barriers that is offered by the internet by getting information out and then by creating the capacities to do fast fulfillment delivery, instant gratification. We had spoken a bit earlier today about segment level analysis yes. and a good co bad co yep. concept. I'd love to learn a bit more from your perspective on this topic. Well, you had mentioned earlier the business that profited you immensely because it had 80% of the business was in an industry that typically warranted four times revenues as a measure of valuation. And the company in which this division played 80% of its role was in another industry and it had a, a multiple of four tenths of one multiple times. So 80% of the business was worth four times revenues, 20% of the business was worth 0.4 times revenues. And the businesses over time highlighted the specific values in each and the market moved the 80% up towards the deserved four times revenue. As a result, the potential for tenfold improvement is embedded in an investment like that. You have to study those segment level results and then try to see within those how far the analysis can take you. Companies are often loath to be overly um, specific about segment level details. They sort of follow the SEC guidelines to a minimum, but it's where all the fun arises. I think of Cartier again, Richemont, which has a dozen famous trademarks and ateliers and all the rest, but they have one which is sort of Cartier's business and they show it as part of an operating segment line. And what they show below it at some point is fashion jewelry. And that's the really interesting one because Cartier has stumbled with its watch business, just like the rest of the watch industry has stumbled. And the Cartier overall results have been fine, but they've also themselves not been particularly robust. But when you get down to the fine jewelry category, now you're looking at a business that doubled in five years to 4.4 billion from 2.2 billion, something like that, order back to. Now, the beauty about the uh, luxury jewelry business is that that business grows globally at at five to 10% a year because there are more occasions to celebrate, more people coming of age, whatever the reasons, more people wanting to show off uh, their wealth. And they do so increasingly through jewelry, luxury jewelry. 
the branded component of luxury jewelry has up until recently only been 10%. And that's when I first invested in Richemont. It was sort of 10%. Now it's up to 20%. Jewelry is growing. Branded jewelry within jewelry is growing. And a company like Richemont has the ability to invest up front to position itself well for that growth. Now, that growth has not yet surfaced really clearly within the response numbers because the two billion to four billion movement that expresses the direction of the jewelry business is kind of buried in the Cartier segment, which has a lot of watch revenues. And so what I love to look for are businesses where you have a segment that has the opportunity to grow virally. And I, I often tell my colleagues that I'm looking for a Rubik's cube. And if you take a Rubik's cube and you think about how it would be quadrants that are all equally cube size, and then you take that existing cube and take two or three of those specific small components and let them grow virally, you will see that cube become deformed over time and that delightfully disformed because each one of those cubes that grows virally well outpacing the original, the growth of the, the standard components of such a Rubik's Cube at enormous value. The goal is to find those subsidiaries, those divisions, and feed them with all the money in the world so they have all the nourishment to grow virally. I think in the case of Richemont, you'd have on different faces of that Rubik's Cube, you might have one called Jewelry, and then you have the brands, Van Cleef, Cartier, then on the other face you might have the watches, and you have the same brand by Divine, and then you have leather goods, and in each case, you have geographies, um, leather goods, the geography is global, then you have the channel, well, it's, in, it's primarily duty-free, and you have all those components. And what our job is, is to find out, before it's obvious in hindsight, which one of those is prepared to receive capital infusions profitably and to grow virally. And in the case of Richmond, I would argue, that the power of the jewelry growth has been obfuscated by how the segments are considered, but it's now becoming big enough that it's now separately reported. And I would say it has the capacity to grow very sharply. In the time that we have left, I'd love to understand and explore why you agreed to speak at Latticework 2017. What is motivating you to share your wisdom? And what could we, as a community, offer you that could be value-add? Well, I would say that it's absolutely as simple as the fact that when I was a 25-year-old business school at Stanford Business School, Warren Buffett came to our class, and you know, this is a long time ago, and spoke without reward to his friend's students, uh, his friend being Professor Jack McDonald, who was really seminal in the value investment community on the West Coast, and in fact all around the country and the world. Uh, as one of those rare professors who understood all that modern portfolio theory and finance offers and realized that despite what it purports to offer, doesn't explain the forces that really drive uh, long-term tax-efficient investment uh, results. And Professor McDonald understood it. One of his guest lecturers was Warren Buffett. I suspect he was worth a couple hundred million dollars when he spoke but he spoke to us and left all of the people in that class with a particular mindset towards the uh, virtues of pursuing a buy and hold thoughtful investment mindset 
And then I found that if I had an opportunity at some, at some point uh, that I would act similarly and offer what I've learned along the way, as did he. At the same time, ironically, at Stanford, I was in the law school and the business school, and Charlie Munker came to the law school, and we met early days, and I told him I was going to work for Bill Ruane. He said, you're the luckiest man in the world because it's so much more interesting to invest than it is to build uh, lawyerly hours. And he did say, however, I warn you against one thing. And I said to him, what was that? So I had pulled him aside at a, after he came out of a, a dean's circle meeting with the law school dean. And I said, what's the downside? He said, well, because if you love the business, you're no good at it, you'll be spoiled for life. Uh, because you won't find anything nearly so interesting as trying to invest. He said, however, he said, make sure you don't end up like Russell Sage. For some reason, Charlie Munger holds Russell Sage in the highest circle of Dante's hell. Because the only thing he did is traded receipts of paper effectively, and he traded his way into a fortune and did nothing. And Charlie said, you know, make sure that you overcome that Russell Sage-itis because it is the most interesting business in the world. And if you let yourself run free, you'll do nothing but want to buy and sell companies and shares of companies. He said, so make sure you reserve time to give something back. And so Charlie Munger said, give something back through foundations and charities and the things that you support. Warren's uh, example suggests that you could give something back by trying to counter in today's world of very short-term minded investors the pressures that keep them from thinking out long term and to provide an example of someone who's at least attempting to do it and um, you know wrestles with with the consequences both positively and that, and enjoys the um, benefits when when long-term investments pan out mr russo again we cherish the time you carved out for us especially in such an authentic and candid environment it is a privilege to learn from you we look forward to seeing you again in September at the Yale Club of New York and truly are grateful for your wisdom. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Hello, this is Shy speaking. With a blank sheet of paper, we set out to design a platform that truly has a reason to exist. We began with five building blocks. One, great people. Two, purposeful interactivity. Three, first-hand perspective four, intellectual honesty, and five, shared learning. We have laid the foundation for something beautiful. Latticework 2017 brings together individuals from around the globe to unpack the many angles of intelligent investing in a changing world. We are learning more about challenger brands, about China, and about disruptive innovation. We are case studying the past in an effort to better navigate the future. We are exploring what is changing and also what is not. Explore the Latticework podcast series via the link at latticework.com. And also, let's meet one another, not just you and I, the collective one another, 100 of us handpicked. Apply to participate in Latticework 2017 at latticework.com, taking place on September 7th in New York City for a full day of fresh insights and new friendships. I hope to see you there.